Welcome back, Missio family. Today, we had a guest speaker, Stu Streeter, who is the Vice President of Ministry Advancement and Church Multiplication through the NAB. If you have any questions about Missio, you'd like to join a missional community, or you have any prayer requests, please contact us at missio.life. A bit of a special day today. We, um, I'm normally up here talking, and so you guys get a break from that, which is good for you. Uh, but we have a special guest with us today named Stu Streeter, and Stu is from the West Coast. We won't hold that against him. He's from California. We, we still love people from California, right? West Coast. <laughs> West Coast, yeah. And so uh, Stu's here with us today, and I've shared kind of our journey, Casey and I and our family, our journey of Missio and and becoming church planters, and Stu is an integral part of that story. Um, back in 2019, I think, is when we first met out in Orange County, California, and just went through that assessment process, and um, just so grateful for his friendship, his leadership, and his role with the North American Baptist. So he is head of church planning for uh, U.S. and Canada, pretty much, internationally, too. But, so he's kind of a big deal, that's what I'm saying. Um, but anyway, he's with us today, and it's been fun for, to be partners with Stu and to share stories with him, and he has resourced us so much as a church and loved on us, um, and just for him to get to be here with our family today is just really a, a treat. So would you welcome Stu Streeter? It uh, is a real treat to be with you, and you have... Just a phenomenal Christ-like leader in Josh, uh, and that's not everywhere. I just hope you know. I, yeah, so big hand. Uh, I'll say a bit more about that in uh, just a little bit, but I just want to start by saying it's great, great, great to be with you. Uh, some years back, I met up for coffee with a good friend of mine from church. Um, we'll call him Patrick for the sake of the story mostly because that's his name, uh, and uh, no, nobody? Okay, that's all right. It's okay. Well, it's, it's early. It's all right. Uh, Patrick and I were having coffee, and he was a young dad at the time. I think he and his wife had a three-year-old and a one-year-old, two daughters. Um, he had just gotten a big promotion at work. Uh, they had just bought a new house. They had what I assume were a couple of car payments, and, and I could just feel as a guy about 15 years ahead of him that there was a lot on his plate, that there may just be a sliver of a chance that Patrick laid in bed a few nights a week wondering, what in the world am I going to do? Just a lot to juggle, a lot going on. And so we met up for coffee, and we did our, you know, your normal small talk and and caught up. And in quick time, I began to poke and prod at things going on in his life, and how are you managing all of this, the promotion, and and two little girls at home, and you're probably not sleeping six hours a night, and and a wife, and all all the other stuff, and a a long pause across the table, and he said, can I be honest with you, and I said, please, and he said, I do this thing every day at lunch, or I take my lunch, and I, I leave my office, and I go out, and I sit in my truck, and I eat my lunch, and I'm thinking, okay, well, that's not that weird, Um, but... That's great. And he said, no, 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 let me get to the weird part. Uh, He said, I open up my phone and I go on the Amazon app. And for my 30 minutes to an hour of my lunch break, I eat and I just fill a shopping cart on Amazon with all the stuff I wish I could have. 
And he said, I, I just add stuff to it. Like, oh, I want that. And then I want that. And he goes, and then did you know on the bottom of the Amazon app, it'll actually suggest things for you that it thinks you might want. And I did all of that stuff. I wanted it all. And I'm kind of listening, like, I never heard, you know, somebody share this before. And, uh, and then he, I said, well, what, what ends it all? And he said, well, my, my lunch hour ends, and then I sometimes will go to the cart and see how much the shopping cart is, how much it would be if I hit checkout. And then I just have this panic come over me. What would happen if I accidentally hit it? Or, even worse, what would happen if my wife logged into the Amazon account while I was in there and she clicked on the full shopping cart and saw the thousands and thousands of dollars of things and wondered. And then out of, out of nowhere, he kind of snaps out of it and he goes through and he deletes everything in the shopping cart and he closes the app and he finishes his lunch and he goes back to work. And I said, so what's going on in that? Like what's the subterranean of your soul in those moments for you? And he didn't quite know. Now, maybe for you, that seems like a weird tool of escapism. Maybe for you, you're doing the same thing. I have told that story a lot of places and heard it's not so out of the ordinary. Maybe your way of escape is you walk around Target and you literally fill a shopping cart. Uh, Maybe for you, it's six hours of Netflix or 10 hours of video games or the whole bottle of wine. Or just sneaking away. Uh, life as a follower of Jesus is not meant to be like that. You, you see, this, this life we live as we follow Jesus is intended to be a joyful and a peaceful and a restful life. And, and I say that, and I, I know that for some of us, what's rattling through our heads as I say that is, well, you don't know the life I have to live, and I, absolutely I don't, but I know the life I have to live. Uh, the great author and contemplative Thomas Kempis wrote these words that when Jesus is near, all is well and nothing seems difficult. Are you mad yet? I kind of am. When he is absent... All is hard. When Jesus does not speak within, all other comfort is empty. But if he says only a word, it brings great consolation. For answers to the question that surround all of that stuff going on in all of us, whether we're seven or whether we're 75, the the anxieties that come up, the great fears the anger, the sadness, the need to escape. I think for answers to those things, we need start nowhere else but the Old Testament book of Jonah. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, turn there with me now, Jonah chapter one, if you're using a digital or or whatever you're doing, get get to Jonah chapter one and uh, let's begin there if you would. Would you pray with me as we get started? Father, Son, and Spirit, we, we know, like in our heads, how deeply you care for our souls. We're just saying of it in a number of different ways. God, would you meet us in these moments? Would you shape us into the kinds of people that experience deep joy, never-ending peace, great love? Speak, we're listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. 
the Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and he went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and he went aboard hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Circle that, underline that, connect that back to the runaway from God, right? Verse four, but the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods, small g gods, for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep in the hold. So the captain went after him and said, how can you sleep at a time like this? He shouted it, in fact. Get up and pray to your God. Again, little G God, that's interesting. He said, maybe he will pay attention and spare us all our lives. Now, you know, no time is wasted in the story of Jonah getting right to the heart of the issue. Now, if you're familiar with this story, you're waiting, like, when do we get to the whale? And can you answer some questions for me? Because I got some questions about three days in a whale. I can't. I'm sorry. I can't answer those questions for you. And I'm going to dodge that and leave that to your pastor. But, but what, what I can say, and this may be a, a, a little irritating, but, you know, I'm going to go on an airplane and go home tomorrow. So you can be irritated with me. That's okay. Uh, I mean, I'm not aiming for that, but I can live with that. The story is not about the whale. We, we get the picture right out the gate that the story is about this inner turmoil with Jonah and his relationship with God and what's going on inside of Jonah, in his interior world, the kind of person Jonah is and has become. And the truth of the matter is, you and I, we are no different. From a bird's eye view, like we know, we know things get a lot harder when we avoid the things that we know God has called us to do or to be. And yet, so often, we run from him. We hide from him. We know that when we distance our life from the teaching of Jesus and the community of Jesus, that things begin to sort of unravel. Things go sideways. Relationships get torn up. And we are taught rightly, I believe, rightly we have been taught that when we draw near to Jesus, peace will be our experience. Joy will begin to overflow. The natural overflow of the Spirit's activity in our lives will be love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. This is promised to us in Galatians 5. All of that I think we all kind of know, 
But sadly, the other thing that we have grown to know or grown to believe is that when we run from God, everything will go horribly wrong for us. And we use that as a bit of our litmus test for whether we're following Jesus' way in our life or not. And this, my friends, is where we have gone off the rails. Because the truth is, on the run, we sleep pretty well. We catch up with Jonah, and he's running from God. It tells us two different times in these opening verses that Jonah is running from what God has told him to do, from the life he has called him to live, and yet here he is down in the hold. The ship is breaking apart. They're throwing possessions off the ship. This is a bad situation. And he's sound asleep down in the hold, (laughs) running from God. And the dirty little secret of the Christian life, whether you've been walking with Jesus 50 years or or five days, is that we all have created a fairly intricate system in our lives to manage our own pain and our own stress and our own worry and our own fear. And we do most of this in the absence of the Holy Spirit's voice and leading. Maybe you've had an Amazon lunch. Maybe not. But as I mentioned earlier, maybe you've sat down and thought you were going to play some video games and seven hours passed. Maybe you decided to watch a show on Netflix and next thing you knew, six hours passed and you'd watch the whole season. Maybe you went into Target just for eggs and a shirt for your kid and you came out with $300 stuff. Shall I continue? We all have these little ways of sort of escaping the reality that is ours. And for others, maybe it's your grandkids. Maybe it's you've thrown yourself into your career. Maybe it's you've, you've overcooked recreation, whatever it might be. In 2008, Jen, my wife and I set out to plant a church in California. And we gathered some of our dearest friends in, in much the same way that Josh and Casey gathered y'all to plant Missio. And uh, we, we got a church going in 2008. And, and there, we had obstacles like anybody has obstacles. And our first couple of years as church planters was I- extraordinarily difficult. It was difficult on our lives. It was difficult on our finances. It just about torpedoed our marriage. It was tough on our kids. And after a couple of years of church planting, we found that all of our evenings had been sacrificed for the church. Our retirement accounts had been completely liquidated to fund things at the church. All of our friendships had been leveraged for the church's good and the church's progress. And we were just empty. We fell into this rhythm during that season of time where we would finally get our kids down to bed. We had little ones at the time, four four little ones all under the age of like 10. We'd get them into bed and we would finally climb into bed exhausted, uh, desperate for God to show up. And we would lay in bed and, and we fell into this pattern where we would begin to fantasize about a new life. 
And for some reason, the life that we fantasized about was in the middle of the night, we would pack up our kids, we would load them into our suburban with just a few suitcases of stuff, and we would drive east, and for whatever reason, we had picked Nebraska. I think because like we didn't know anybody who had ever lived or even been to Nebraska. And we, we just thought that would be a clean break, and, and we intricately created this world where this would be our escape. And we would plan a little further into the process and then eventually we would kind of nod off and fall asleep. And I remember many times waking up in the morning and thinking, that was a weird conversation. But it went on for months and each night we would lay back down in bed and we would pick up the fantasy right where we left it off last night. Okay, so where were we at, honey? We were at driver's licenses. Okay, so how do we get new driver's licenses with new names so nobody could ever find us? Well, I don't really know how to do that. Well, I don't, okay, well, what will we tell the kid? And if I'm completely honest, there are a few times where after the conversation died out in the evening and we began to doze off, I would lay there thinking, if she sits up and says, let's go, I'm out. I'd do it. Talk about being asleep in the hold, running from God. Thankfully, God snapped us out of it. But in in all of that, it was a smoke signal to our soul of what was going on internally. And I couldn't ever reconcile that with the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear. And the burden I give you is light. We we read those words. And I think sometimes we just read them as if they're like some sort of an Instagram inspirational post. And we forget that these are like the real words of Jesus. And I think at least in my mind, there have been times in my life where I've read these words and thought, well, you know, Jesus is just doing like pastoral exaggeration like I do. No, no, no. This is Jesus saying that if you take upon you the yoke of Jesus, it will be easy. What? And while none of us get this perfectly, let me pause for just a quick moment to simply do the first of a couple reflections this morning. And let me just tell you that as we look at this text on the screen, These are the kinds of leaders you have in your church. And I'm telling you, friends, it's really rare. But I've spent a lot of time with Pastor Josh and with Casey over the years. Uh, It dates all the way back to 2019 on an initial, I think it was a Zoom call, was our first interaction. And I, I remember hitting end on that Zoom call and thinking, this is a really unique guy. He's both humble and full of vision. Those two things don't always go together. I I hope you recognize that. Like, you oftentimes have to pick between a visionary and somebody who's humble. And you figure, well, 
if we really want vision, if we really want to change the world, we got to deal with this arrogant jerk leading us. But, you know, that's what it takes to change the world. No. The, the words tell us that his burden is light and easy. As the years carried on and Josh and Casey moved here to Bismarck to establish Missio, things weren't all easy. There was tremendous adversity in their life. People who opposed them, health issues. I'm sure there were financial issues I don't even know about. I'm sure there's some gray hair from all of this that you guys have put together. And in all of that, facing great adversity, you just see Josh and Casey being the real deal. They're just the real deal. The people you get here on Sunday morning are the same people you would get on a Friday night. Kind, gentle, not self-absorbed, steely-eyed focus on the way of Jesus. These are your leaders, friends. Be very grateful for the leaders you have. These are incredible people. Well, like Josh and Casey, if we were to sit for any extended period of time, and and that time would cause some pain in our life, but if we would stay in it, if we would sit and reflect on the kind of person we were becoming and, and the ways in which our life was asleep down in the hold while chaos was going on upstairs, we would meet Jesus. Jesus would rush into that and, and his voice would whisper to us, come to me, you're clearly weary. Clearly you're carrying heavy burdens. I want to give you rest. And over time, it might take minutes, it might take an hour, it might take longer than an hour, but in a fairly short period of time in that careful reflection, With these words of Jesus at the heart of that moment, his love could overcome all of your anxieties, all of the worry, all of the panic, the fear, the anger, the rage. There is hope in the seasons when we carry heavy burdens. There is hope when we know that God has asked us to do something for him and we have run from him. There is hope of return back to his peaceful and gentle and beautiful way. Because just like Jonah, God sends gifts to us in the way of somebody rattling us awake, saying, hey, how can you be asleep right now? Continue on with me in Jonah into verse 7. They've gone down there. They've asked him to begin to pray to the gods to spare their lives. And in verse 7 it says, Then the crew cast lots to see which one of them had offended the gods and caused this terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Verse 8. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you and what is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? I mean, they're just peppering him with questions. Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the seas and the land. And the sailors were terrified when they heard this, for they had already told him he was running away from the Lord. 
Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. Since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to stop the storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will all become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Well, instead, verse 13, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to the land, but the stormy sea was too violent and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. Oh, Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin. Don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh, Lord, you've sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. And then the sailors picked up Jonah and threw him into the raging sea. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power. For the storm stopped at once. And they offered him a sacrifice and they vowed to serve him. And now the Lord arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah awakes to what truly is. Jonah awakes essentially to a mirror in his face. This is who you actually are, Jonah. And the story presents for us, at least in chapter one, with this really cute, neatly packaged up moral story. One that we have taught in nurseries for the last 50, 60 years of the evangelical church. Jonah realizes he's been a bad boy. He jumps in the ocean. The storm stops. Pagans turn to God. God protects Jonah. And everyone serves the Lord God Almighty. And we all clap and then we stand and we sing a song. We take an offering. We go, just be better. And as your friend from out of town, I just ask the question, how's that working out for you? We call that in the spiritual formation world, white-knuckling it. Uh, the addiction world calls it the same, white-knuckling. It, it's when we try to live a way that we know perfectly well is not who we are. You ever been in a conversation and you just feel your blood beginning to boil and you're just shoving down the rage, shoving it down, shoving it down, and it's like, I'm either gonna explode or run away or whatever. Well, that's all that inside, that's actually who you are. That's <laughs> who we But you know as well as I do that even though Jonah gets it right, there's something going on in him subterranean that that indicates who he actually is. And, And this is where the whale comes in because inside the whale, whatever your whale is, inside the whale are opportunities for transformation. Maybe your whale is the job you're in right now or the relationship you're in right now or the financial struggle. We all have our moments in the belly of the whale that are inexplicable. We don't know how we survived that experience in the whale. Adam and Eve had their time in hiding. Jonah had his whale. Abram had Egypt. Israel had the wilderness. David had his rock of escape. Paul had blindness. The church of Acts had its scattering, and my friend Patrick had Amazon lunches. In all these experiences, none of us would wish to remain in the whale very long, but if we will stay there for a moment and just recognize what's going on in us, to lean into 
those moments of solitude, Jesus will begin to speak in. Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest for your soul. In his book, Way of the Heart, Henry Nouwen says that solitude is the place of purification and transformation. The place of the greatest struggle and the greatest encounter. The place of salvation. A couple more things I'd love to say if I had another half hour, but I won't. Uh, But I will say this much. I think we often settle too much for the salvation of getting out of the whale instead of striving for the transformation that was available to us in the whale. Just get me out of this situation, God. And God does. He, he loves us and he often delivers us from a situation. But I might argue for you and with you that his greatest desire is to transform you in the situation. Jonah swallowed up, and in Jonah chapter 2, he prays this beautiful prayer, a a template prayer that we could use in our lives that would be an incredible way of connecting with God, a prayer of salvation. Chapter 3, he continues with kind of his good behavior, and and you begin to think, oh, something happened in Jonah. Everything has changed. He does what the Lord had called him to do, and he speaks the message of repentance to Nineveh, kind of against his better wishes and judgment. And it would seem yet again that a perfect moral is teed up for us to teach. Just even if you don't obey on time, obey in time, and good things will happen, right? And that's true. But chapter 4 crashes all of that in a a really, really unique way. Look there with me briefly. Go to chapter 4. The opening verses of chapter 4, God has delivered Nineveh. He has spared them the destruction he said was coming. And this change of plans greatly upset Jonah. (laughs) Remember, God had said he was going to wipe out Nineveh. And Jonah argues with God, no, you won't. You're too gracious. You're too loving. You won't wipe them out, and you should wipe them out. And he became really angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Wow. And the spiral continues through the end of the chapter. I encourage you to read it sometime. He sits down next to a tree and is asking God to kill him and a, a, God grows a leaf to give him shade, but the next day a worm eats the leaf and he cries out to God again, See God, you never take care of me. And God says to him, You're worried about one little leaf. I'm worried about 120,000 people in Nineveh. You see, our lack of dealing with our interior world and aligning it with the way and the will of Jesus has tremendous impact on our city. 
We're thinking about the leaf over our head in the shade we long for. God's thinking about a whole city and how he wants to use us to impact the city. I want to invite the band to join me up here and as they get settled to lead us in worship and communion, I want to encourage you to take a second moment of reflection here and just ponder a few questions. Take a moment, just you and God. I'm not going to ask you to write anything down or confess anything out loud, just between you and God. And simply ask God these questions. God, what makes me run from you? God, what makes me run from you? Maybe you've already been thinking about it in the last 20 minutes. And then a second question. God, what do you want to transform inside of me? For the sake of my own soul, for the sake of my family, but for the sake of the city. What is it in me that you long to transform? As you consider those things, let me close by just reading Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 again. Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Oh, Jesus, in the words of King David, teach us your way that we might walk in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Stu left us with a challenge for this week. Try journaling every night for a week. Ask yourself, When did I run from God today? What does He desire to transform in me? Thanks again for listening, Missio family. We'll see you again next week.